my name is Pastor Russ. I have the honor of being the senior pastor here at, uh, F- at Four Points Church. Last weekend, I got to go and uh, be encouraged by and give some encouragement to some pastors in the Baltimore, Maryland area. Uh, I have two uh, brothers in Christ that I love, love what God's doing through them, the Gates Church in the inner city of Baltimore that we're actually going to be sending a team up to do some work with later this year. Uh, and then another pastor friend of mine, Pastor Chris Davis, he's a part of Northwest Baptist Church. They send their greetings to you uh, as they are continuing to worship and pursue loving and walking with the Lord. Uh, Baltimore needs the gospel like our community needs the gospel, and I'm excited for you to be encouraged Uh, by what God's doing in their ministries up there in the weeks and months to come as well. Uh, Pastor uh, Daniel did a phenomenal job of wrapping up really the first quarter of this year uh, last week. He landed the plane on our Made by the Word series. Uh, I think he did great. Anybody else here was here? Witness? Yeah? Okay. Praise God. Praise God. Uh, Glad you're here. Um, So we, we had two goals at the beginning of this year. Uh, the goals really centered on this one big idea, and that is the decompartmentalization of your faith. Uh, that is my ambition as your pastor or as your substitute pastor today, as you're checking out churches, is that your faith would be decompartmentalized from a Sunday-only faith. Uh, Satan does not tremble at your praise within the walls of the church. He trembles at a life that is changed, filled with the Holy Spirit, and living on mission outside of the walls of the church. And if what we do in here does not impact the way that you live there, then we cannot say that we have been changed by this resurrected Savior that we claim to have witnessed and been impacted by His power. And so really our ambition has been that your faith would move from this place into your neighborhood, into your job, into your relationships, into the way that you view the world around you. And so we wanted to begin the year by looking at the suffering servant who is Jesus, and we wanted to challenge you to live a life that walked in service to the suffering servant that wouldn't be surprised by suffering if it comes in that path. Uh, You and I have been warned, and we have even been promised, that if we long for living a life that looks like Jesus, it will be accompanied with grief. It'll be accompanied with resistance. It'll be accompanied with pushback. And so we wanted to start the year by learning what it looks like for you and I to daily live as servants of a throne instead of trying to build a throne in which we are served by others around us. Uh, The second series we looked at was made by the Word. The truth is, if you want to know the Lord, you need to know the Word. If you don't know the Lord, you can know a version. If you don't know the Word, you can know a version of the Lord that's probably got a lot of your edits tied to it. This doesn't help. Because pseudo-Jesuses that are not biblical Jesuses cannot save you, cannot deliver you, and have no power to impact and change your life. And so we wanted you to build a simple habit over the time that we were in the Made by the Word series that you would read the Bible consistently and drive it through to the point of application in your life. So now we're going to transition into a new season. We're going to look at two series coming up that wrap around our Easter season and carry us all the way into early summer. This first series is called The Least the lost, and the lonely. I can't wait to preach some of it to you today in just a moment. The second series is called We Are Four Points. What are we doing in these two series? We're looking at the heart that shaped the mission of our church in this series, The Least, the Lost, and the Lonely. It's all going to come out of Luke chapter 15. So 11 years ago, there were a bunch of crazy people that came from different churches and backgrounds that wanted to create a church where the people in the margins could be connected and welcomed home. That birthed Four Points Church. It started in a pizza inn on 290. 
And on the other side of a pizza buffet, God has faithfully for 11 plus years reached the least, the lost, and the lonely. For some of us, we've never lost the 15 that we gained when we were in the buffet. Not pointing any fingers, and no one wanted to laugh or admit to that. My, my point is, my point is, we are going to talk about the mission of our church in this series that comes out of Luke 15, and then we're going to talk about the values that keep us focused on the main thing after Easter in a series that we've called We Are Four Points. We can't wait to talk to you about what God, we believe God is doing and what God has called us to do as a church. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 15, that's where we're going to be for the next several weeks. Uh, I'm excited about this chapter of Scripture. It lays out Jesus' heart and mission for why he came to earth so clearly and plainly. I'm excited for its impact on our lives together. Uh, Our mission at Four Points Church is to reach the least, the lost, and the lonely with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we aim to do in all of our ministry efforts, in our preaching, in our singing, in our service, in our outreach. It is that we would engage the disengaged with the gospel, that they would see a risen Savior at work in a very diverse people, and they would be drawn to want to know more about this Savior that can bring people from different backgrounds and different, uh, in different areas of life together to be one people having witnessed the resurrection of Christ and been impacted by the, res- by the resurrection of Christ. And so we aim to do that in everything that we do. And as we open up to Luke chapter 15, uh, we get this story that starts us on a journey of understanding why that is so central to our DNA as a church. Look at it with me. Luke 15 verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, Jesus And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Two verses. We're going to be here for the next two weeks. It may seem like we've not discussed a lot, but there's a lot in those two verses. Essentially, the question is, why is Jesus hanging out with messy people? Why is Jesus hanging out with bad people? Why is Jesus hanging around people that we wouldn't allow in our neighborhood, much less our churches. This is the question that comes from the Pharisees to Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with Luke 15, he's going to answer their question in just a few moments in three stories. Those three stories set the heart for which why or for, for why Jesus came to live and do what he was going to do on earth. Now, this is in the text, Luke 15, the fourth time a question about food has come up in Luke's gospel. Four times the problem is not the food they're eating, that comes later in the New Testament, but it's the who that are around the table that they're eating food with. If you notice in verse 2, the Pharisees' problems are that these sinners are coming around and these tax collectors are coming around and he receives them. He doesn't tell them to go away. And not only does he receive them, he even, what does the word say? He even eats with them. He even eats with them. So what's the big deal about having someone over for a meal. If you go back and study Jewish history, what you'll understand is that the Jewish table was a place of fellowship and acceptance. Who you sat with ultimately distinguished you as to who you were a part of within society. So it was always in your interest to bring the most elite and the most uh, respected in your community and to have them over to your party and to your table. Because if they sat at your table, they were saying, we accept you as being on our level. We accept you as being worthy of being in our presence. And it gave you status because they had been at your table. 
Much could be said of having the least or people that were broken at your table. If you fellowship with tax collectors, if you fellowship with sinners, it would say that you are just like them, traitors and the least and the marginalized. So here comes Jesus, who's having meals with Pharisees, who's having meals with tax collectors, and who's having meals with sinners. And the Pharisees love the fact that this wise teacher that seems to confound them at times and frustrate them at times is eating with them, but they don't understand why he would leave their tables and go to the tables of tax collectors and sinners. This frustrated them because it meant that Jesus was associating with people that a righteous man should not be near or around. You see, in the text, what we see is that there's in Luke 5, uh, in Luke 7, and in Luke 14, different stories about Jesus eating with all three groups of people that are represented in Luke chapter 15. The frustration of verse 1 is that Jesus is going to the table with those people. And let me be honest, everybody in this room has those people in their life. Like if Jesus showed up, who would it enrage you the most for him to go and eat with? The person that harmed you, hurt you, betrayed you, was two-faced, uh, that you've not forgiven, that has driven bitterness in your life, that is worthy of prison but walks free while you live in the prison of what they've done to you. Uh, you see, for, for a lot of us, the offense of the Pharisees is something that we like to go, well, they're just being uh, rude. But when you begin to put the people that are in that group that you don't like, that you want to dismiss, that you want to overlook, that you want God's wrath and not God's, God's grace for, it becomes a whole lot easier for you and I to begin to relate to the cry of the Pharisee to go, how dare you lead with love to them? How dare you eat with them until they've said sorry and changed? How dare you allow them to be in your presence, God, when they've hurt me so deeply? You see, this was the frustration. Those people were the people that were around Jesus. Now, there were uh, in this text, two groups that are being brought up as objectionable. The first is tax collectors, the second is sinners. We're going to look at tax collectors this week and why it was such an offense. And then we're going to look at sinners next week and why it was such an offense. And then we're going to jump into the parables and the stories in the week after. Now there's two prominent tax collectors that we're given stories and background into in Luke's gospel. The first is a disciple named... Matthew, thanks Bible trivia. Number two, the second comes a little bit later after Luke 15, and he was a wee little man named Zacchaeus. And we're given background into these two tax collectors' lives, and it gives us insight into why the Pharisees saw it as such an objectionable act for Jesus to sit at the table with tax collectors. We have Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus, and Luke chapter 5, the story of Matthew. Chuck Swindoll in his commentary on the text said this, uh, tax collectors have betrayed their people, rejected their heritage, despised their temple, and renounced their God. Task collectors had sold themselves to foreigners, the Roman government, which put them on the same level as shameless harlots, which is the other class of people that we're going to talk about next week, which are sinners. You see, what we have in this story is the story of task collectors who are being welcomed by the Savior. Both Zacchaeus and Matthew have him at their table in their house. If you go back to Luke chapter 5, we get the story of Matthew. Let's look at it together. Luke chapter 5. Anybody awake this morning? I thought daylight savings time was last week, but y'all are like half asleep on me this week. I don't know what's happening. Did you not sleep well? They have a 90-day free trial on Tempur-Pedic mattresses, I hear. You, 
perhaps want to try it. After this, Luke chapter 5, verse 27, this is the call of Matthew, whose name was what? Levi, beforehand. We'll look at that again in a second. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, this was very big time scandal for a couple of reasons. Uh, imagine, uh, how many of you like paying taxes? Okay, so, so that's surface level. But let's, let's imagine that you're in an occupied country that has been occupied by an enemy army. And the enemy army has come in and set up an outpost of soldiers to ensure that you continue to bow to their will and help pay for their big kingdom that they're building. So you live in an occupied land uh, with soldiers that are now taking up real estate within your area that cause you to kind of walk the other way and hide in the margins away from them in the land that belongs to you. Now, the way that Rome kept this big system alive is they built a tax farming system. So annually, an assessor would come into a village. This was in Capernaum in Luke chapter 5, which was a part of this trade route named, named the Via Marsa. And the Via Marsa was a lucrative trade route. It's where tons of resource was coming through, coming out of Egypt and up into the other areas of the Roman kingdom, which meant that there was a lot to tax. So they would come in annually and assess what is the taxable amount, what's the rate at which we can tax the people with the trade that's coming through this area. Then that assessor would auction off the right to collect those taxes annually to the highest bidder. So locally, those who were ethnically Jewish in an occupied Roman territory would have an assessor that was Roman come in and go, this is what can be collected here annually and should be collected. And then they would bid for the right to be the collector so that on the side they could gather in more for themselves so they could tax above the rate at which was required by the Roman government. So the winner became the Telones, which is the tax collector. There were lots of taxes during Jesus' time. Many of you are complaining about your taxes. Let's go back to his time. Tax rates were nearly 50% across all Ro Roman government-ruled areas. 50%. Uh, there were fixed taxes and duties and toll taxes. Fixed taxes left little to no room for extortion, such as poll taxes. Coming into the city of Capernaum, you would pay a poll tax. That was literally a tax for being alive and walking around. It's what I experienced driving from Baltimore to Philadelphia last week. They charged you about $20 to get back and forth between Baltimore and Philadelphia. I think it's the way that they keep you from moving around. But nonetheless, my, my point is there were fixed taxes. There were poll taxes. There's ground tax. That means anything that comes out of the ground required a one-tenth tax. That was one-tenth of all grain, one-tenth of all wine, one-tenth of all oil. There was a 1% income tax on all of your earnings. So those were your fixed taxes. On top of that, you had uh, duties and tolls. Uh, that's where Matthew and other tax collectors made their living. Those were taxes on roads and docking and harbors. Those were taxes on import and export duties. Those were sales taxes on certain items. Cart taxes, which were charged by the number of wheels that were hauling what you were bringing into the city to trade. More wills, more taxes. Less wills, less taxes. A tax collector could stop anyone on the road and make him unpack his bundles and charge just about anything his larcenous heart desired. 
If the traveler could not pay the tax, the collector would offer to loan him money at an exorbitant rate. Capernaum, where Matthew likely was from and our story is set in, was known as the Way of the Sea, and it was situated on the Via Maris, a trade route that made the city a boomtown for commerce. Think about this. Matthew, sitting in his tax collector booth, is seen by Jesus, and he is the one that has outbid other corrupt people for the right to corruption and would then overtax to ensure that he could repurchase the collection rights the next year. That's who Matthew is. Matthew's not the lovable character on The Chosen that you've been watching that you're like, oh, isn't he just great? Matthew is a criminal. I want you to think about how you would feel towards Matthew. If you were a Jewish citizen in your home and a fellow Jewish citizen corruptly had bid to collaborate with the occupying forces, knocks on your door to take bread off of your table for your family, and not only does he go and feed the army that's oppressing you, he feeds his own family so that he can live in an exorbitant lifestyle. How many of you are giving Zacchaeus a spot in the parade route to see Jesus if he's a tax collector? How many of you are inviting Matthew to sit by you in church? How many of you are inviting him to your table for the feast? I mean, th- this is the definition of loving your enemies. Because by the behavior of Matthew, he's done nothing but been an enemy to his own people. And within the text, in Luke chapter 5, there's a confounding, amazing word. Jesus Luke 5, verse 27, went out and saw a tax collector. The, the word saw, that, that's what I want to zone in on. It's this incredible word. Jesus saw Matthew sitting in his corruption, doing what he corruptly was doing. This isn't the cleaned up version that we bring to church, where we set aside all of the sins of the night before as if it's not real and it's not happening, and then we come in and act like we're a saint, even though we've been nothing but a hell-bent sinner all week. This is in the act, at his lowest, in the depths of his corruption, and Jesus sees him there. I want to submit to you that the goodness of God, it's not that he sees the idolized versions of ourselves that we like to portray, but he sees us in our most corrupt state. He sees us in our most uh, atheistic moments where we don't believe and have no faith and are honestly just walking away from the Lord and his leadership and trust in our lives. It is here that Jesus sees him. How many of you had a mama that used to say things like, is this where you want to be when Jesus comes back? Is this what you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? Those statements always scared me and framed a picture of God that when he saw me, he would be miffed and disappointed and angry with me. But what's amazing about this is that the word saw is a Greek word, which is, I'm going to mispronounce it, theaomahi. There we go. You try. I took Greek and I still struggle. Uh, it means to behold, to look upon, to view attentively, to contemplate, and it is often used of public shows or of, more impo- of important persons that are looked on with admiration. So the definition has all of what I just said in the beginning, or to be looked on with admiration. And, and here's what I need you to, to, to know. I, I studied this verse and looked in the background of it, and most theologians agree that what Jesus is doing when he's looking at Matthew is he's not begrudging him. He's not angry with him. He's 
admiring him because he sees what Matthew can't see about himself. He sees what Matthew's about to become. He sees, about, he sees what Matthew's about to do and where Matthew's about to go. And this is the beauty. When God looks at us, he doesn't look at us like Joe Dirt says. He doesn't look at us like Bobby Boucher's mom says. Like He looks at us with love. He looks at us with admiration. He looks at us because he can see what we can be when he steps into our story and overtakes our life. Kent Hughes, a theologian and pastor, said it this way. Christ saw... In the disfigured life of Levi, the tax collector, a Matthew, which is what his name becomes, which means a writer, an evangelist, and a collector of souls. What do you think Jesus sees when he sees you? No, I'm I'm serious. I want you to actually think about it. What do you believe Jesus sees when he sees you? Does he admire? Does he love or does he look at you with disdain in your mind is he displeased with you in your mind or is he patient and gracious and does he pity you or does he have compassion for you where he desires something greater i believe that jesus sees sinners with all their moral deformity through his artist eye ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says it this way For we are God's masterpiece. He was created, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I believe when God sees us, he sees the potential of what we can become with Christ in us and not just merely the potential of what we are in our flesh and apart from the work of Christ. And then this is why there was such an objection to Jesus and the tax collectors. Jesus not only sees him sitting there, looks on him with admiration, but the next part of the text says, he looks at him and says what? Follow me. Follow me. Now, for you and I, we think that just literally means like, you know, he said something, like the word broke, he had a slight gleam in his eye. Matthew was like, I will now be a righteous man. And he began to speak King James and walk around with it. Like, he uttered the invitation to be a disciple. Uh, follow me means be my disciple. It is one of the highest honors and privileges that could ever be given to anyone. And Jesus is bestowing the honor and privilege of being a disciple on a betrayer who's betrayed his own people, on a thief who's stolen from his own people, who is not repentant of it, but is in the act of it. See, I think this is the part. We're good with change as long as it comes, as long as the invitations come long after the sinners become a saint. Like, we're good with it. But it's got, it, that's, why, that's why we lie in church. You're struggling in sin, but if you were to come forward and get prayed for today, many of you would go, oh, but it's a struggle from way long time ago. Bull! Bull, and that's the nicest way I know to say it. You're in it, and I know you're in it. Stop lying. Stop acting like it's got to be distant past for you to be received and prayed for. Like God can't honor a lie. Some of you, you've done the most grievous of things within the last 24 hours, and thank God you're still here. You came to church because you need Jesus, and Jesus isn't shocked, and he's not looking. He's like, well, now you're going to show up. You didn't read your Bible all week, but now you're going to show up and want me to speak. You want me to move? That's not the way God's working. He loves you. He is slow to anger, full of mercy and compassion and gracious to us. And many of us don't know the heart of God, so then we look at other people and we make them into being some kind of clown imposters that come into church and try and cover up instead of unveil the fact that they need Jesus because there's sinful, broken stuff in their heart that they can't fix and change. And it's a lot more recent history than this uh, distant past. 
The invitation to follow me comes in the, out of the tax collector booth, not, not on the other side of him repenting, not on the other side of Jesus giving the side eye, and he's like, oh, I better get my life together because Jesus is here. Follow me. This is not, I'll save you and you can one day go to heaven one day. This is, I am calling you and inviting you to be a part of my work and my story today. You see, this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus called the most unacceptable of candidates. The most publicly unacceptable candidate for discipleship to be his disciple. And this is good news for you and me. Because our rep publicly might make us, in many's eyes, to be the least to be used by Jesus. But my Bible reads of a story of a Savior that uses the least on a frequent basis. He takes the foolish things of this world to confound the, the wise. And this is the Savior that we serve. Now notice what happens in verse 29, if you continue to read the story. And Levi, in hearing, follow me, leaves everything... He rose and followed him, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. How was that house being paid for? How was the house being paid for? Taxes, okay. There was food on the table. How was that food being paid for? He made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, uh, but it's those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous sinners to repentance. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here, here's what I'm trying to get across to you a few things. Number one, I asked a question, it was a trap. How do you get a house? And you said taxes. How do you get food on the table? You said taxes. What you don't know is that before it was ever taxed, it already belonged to Jesus. For a lot of us, our views of possessions have hindered us into thinking that, you know, like how, how, how dare Matthew take what was dishonorable and use it to honor God? Well, it already belonged to him. The bread already was his. The cup already was his. The dirt that the house was made out of was already his. You see, they took no resources that weren't already belonging to the Savior and used them. Now, were they corrupt means in getting them to the point of it being a structure and to the point of him having a table? Sure. But at the end of the day, it all first belonged to Jesus. So it makes sense that whenever Matthew repents, that he take what was originally belonging to Jesus and start by honoring Jesus, though he has come by things that he has in his possession by corrupt means. He throws a party. Why throw a party? Well, the truth is, celebration was in order. A sinner who had been a curse to the neighborhood had converted and now was going to walk as Matthew, which literally means gift of God. In regards to the conversion experience, Bishop Ryle, a famous old preacher, said it this way, it is far more important even than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. It is being made a king and a priest forevermore. It is being provided for both in time and eternity. It is adoption into the noblest and richest of all the families, the family of God. So absolutely, they threw a 
party. So absolutely, they called all their sinful friends over so they can meet the Jesus that can meet them in their tax collector booths and call them out into a new life that they believe is in their past and irredeemable and something they cannot become. Absolutely, they celebrated. You celebrate quinceaneras. You celebrate birthday parties. You celebrate your kid like getting a ribbon at school. You celebrate the end of a school year. Why would we not celebrate eternal life change in the life of a brother or sister in Christ. You know why? Because for a lot of us, we would rather go, well, let's wait and see if it's real change. Let's see if it sticks. Let's see if it's real. Oh, and I'm, I'm poking at the Pharisee bones in all of you because we exist as a church to be the first to throw the party. We're the first to. Why would we sit with our arms crossed when heaven rejoices over one sinner that turns to Christ? If heaven is celebrating, why are we still waiting on evidence of salvation? As if it was dependent upon the prayer the person prayed and not the Savior that stepped into the life of the broken person. Is, my, is the church still here? Are you, are you awake? Because I, I, I feel like I'm preaching to a wall. This is what we exist to do. We lead with the party. We throw the celebration for the prodigal whenever they come home. Like, like this, is, this is what we do as a church. We are not going to wait on you to, to uh, form to our man-made versions of God's rules that we want to institute that magnify our strengths and minimize our own weaknesses. Instead, when one sinner repents, though it's still going to be messy, though it's still going to be a road of brokenness, there's going to be times where they go back and do stupid stuff and leave the 99 and all the other stories that Jesus is about to tell to talk about his heart we still throw the party. We still begin the celebration because the work of Christ has begun. And Jesus doesn't lose what he grabs hold of. Therefore, sing, take a lap, and dance. The second thing I want you to see is that Jesus hung out with sinners without committing sin. Many of you, you read the story, you're like, yeah, that's, that's what we do. We hang out with simple people. No, you do simple things with simple people, which makes you just another simple person. So don't, don't act like the other side of the pendulum here is that you're going to go out and you're going to win the world by drinking them to Christ. No, you're not, dumb-dumb. <laughs> like, stop being stupid. That's ignorance. Be holy because he is holy. Be everything Christ has created you to be in every circumstance that you find yourself in. So if you're at school, be the same person that you are here on stage. And if you can't at school be the same person you are here on stage, then get off the stage. Like if you see me at a baseball game getting sunburned, coaching my son's little league team, or standing on the stage preaching, I better be the same person. There better not be, uh, well, usually I don't do this, but I'm going to put on the flesh again and live contrary to the Spirit and act a fool and allow my mouth to misrepresent Christ because, you know, like, it's a lost world and I'm just trying to engage it. No, you're not. You're selfishly trying to get achievements from it. And as a result of you wanting to fit in with it, you no longer want to be distinguished by Christ within it. What Christ does is he sits at the table holy, sanctified in everything that he is, and he doesn't lose any of it because he sits at the table with sinners. And for you and I, if we want to be effective, we've got to learn that our Christian faith is not a Christian faith that is loud here and quiet there. I don't need you to be a beast in the church and a I don't need you to be a beast in the in the church and a coward in the streets. Which is what a lot of us do. We we pontificate about the greatness of God here, and then we are quiet and as meek as a mouse out there. 
No matter his environment, Jesus was the same. No matter his environment, Jesus was the same. And if you and I want to be an effective witness of Christ, you've got to learn where you're not the same right now, how to be the same in Christ. You see, this hanging out with sinners didn't work for the Pharisees because they believed in a salvation by segregation, which was a segregation from most of the world. But Jesus comes to give them this message that he, as the good physician, as the great physician, has come to seek those who know they're sick, who know that they're in need, which is what we see in verses 30 to 32. To be clear, the Pharisees in this story that are questioning Jesus in Luke 5, that are questioning Jesus in Luke 15, they're not well either. They believe they're well, but they're not. The tax collectors are not well. The sinners are not well. The difference in the two groups is one knows they're not okay, and another group thinks everything's fine. The difference between the two groups is one knows they need Jesus, and one thinks they're pretty much fine. And this is why we continue to have a lot of people that come to church, and they love it for a while, and then they leave. Why? Because I'm not okay with you having some kind of indifferent posture towards Jesus. If, if all I do is irritate you to the point of going, I don't like that guy. I, I just don't want, and that's all I do. Is get, I, just don't, I had someone tell me that I was advanced Christianity and they were just trying to get, get into basic Christianity. He told me that. It was in California because they didn't know to lie like y'all know how to lie down here. In, they don't have enough church culture out there to go, you're not supposed to say that to the preacher. He said that to me, and I, I literally looked at him and I was like, well, last I checked, there's like one kind of Christianity, and it looks pretty radical and over the top. It, it looks like leaving your nets and following Jesus. It looks like standing up in your corruption of the tax booth that you're sitting in and following Jesus. Like, I, I've just, I, I don't know a lukewarm version of this to give you. I don't know like a, here's the first step, and let's see. <laughs> like, coming up soon, the pool's going to be uncovered. And there are going to be two types of people that will approach that pool for the first time this spring. The older versions of us that are going to take our toes and we're going to dip it in. And we're going to think that's, that's all we need to do. That's calm. That's compartmentalized Christianity. And then there's what my nine-year-old mullet-wearing son's going to do. He is going to scream and he is going to run and he is going to jump center of the pool straight in with no care of the temperature of the pool. Why? Because it's, it's swimming season again. Why? Because the sun's out and we get to enjoy the pool again. And, and it's not something we ease into. You jump into it. Well, when it comes to Christianity, you don't dip your toe in. You don't dip your toe in. You jump in. Brennan Manning, who's an author, he said this. He said, paradoxically, what intrudes between God and human beings is our fastidious morality and pseudo-piety. That's basic Christianity for a lot of us. It's half-hearted praise, half-hearted commitment, half-hearted truth. It's Phariseeism. It's outside it looks good in the right place, but inside there's no power and there's no change. It is not the prostitutes and tax collectors who find it most difficult to repent. 
It is the devout who feel they have no need to repent. And this, this continues to be my concern in the southeast of the United States. That for many of you, you have been so church cultured to keep it together in church that you do not know when you need to run to the altar and bend your knee. This is why I talk so much about repentance. In a healthy church and in a healthy Christian life, repentance must be normal. It's common. It's common. So there's a story in Luke 18. We won't, or Luke 19. We won't go there right now. And uh, it's the story of a wee little man named Zacchaeus. And no one let him get into the line to see Jesus, so he had to climb up into a tree to get to him. Because when you're in desperate places, you don't care what resistance is keeping you from God. You don't care about church people and what they would say. Religious people and what they might think. Like when you know you need Jesus and this is your shot, you climb up in a tree and look ridiculous as a grown man if that's what it means. That's desperate people. So he climbs him in the tree and Jesus sees him in the most ridiculous state he could be in. A grown man in a tree above a crowd just wanting to get a glimpse of Jesus. And he's shocked. You know why he's shocked? Jesus already knew his name. He already knew his story. And he already was coming to his house. The parade route that everyone thought was bringing Jesus into town to meet with the crowds was actually a route heading straight to Zacchaeus' house. And there, there would be a life change. Zacchaeus would, in response to Jesus coming to his table, repent. And he would be changed inwardly, but the outward expression of that meant that he began to take what he was holding tightly to and began to freely give back. Anyone that he had taken and robbed from, he began to give back. Any of his possessions, he began to cut in half, being willing to give freely because he had found the true treasure of his heart in Jesus. <laughs> you see there, or at the table, Jesus brings sinners Jesus brings tax collectors, and Jesus welcomes Pharisees. But the good thing about Jesus is he leads with the fellowship of his table before. He requires us to change and transform our own lives. So this morning we're going to take communion. We're going to do it differently. Uh, we're going to have two sets of communion, one on this side, one on this side. And uh, this is something we've been commanded to do in remembrance of the table the Lord has set for us to give us unity. Uh, usually we do it corporately together at the same time. Uh, but this morning instead, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Uh, in fact, I actually want you to stay there. You guys stay right there. We're going to serve you communion from the back. Up front, we're going to have an altar. And if you need to come forward and pray, we want you to come forward and pray. If you're holding on to unforgiveness against your brother, the command would be that you would forgive your brother before you would go and take communion. So you may need to step out and make a phone call. You may need to walk across an aisle and talk to someone. I'm serious. This is not a joke. And most of you know that by now. When I start talking about this stuff, I'm like, yeah, I really mean forgive each other. For some of you, you need to come and bend a knee before God and repent of your own sin before you go and take communion. Not because it's a prerequisite, but because you need to know and experience the grace that you're remembering by coming to Jesus whenever you are tempted to be silent and quiet about your sin. 
If you need to give your life to Christ, our prayer team is going to come down, and they're going to be right here, and they'd love to pray with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You don't have to be a church member to take communion. You just have to be a follower of Jesus. Prayer team, you come on and come. So here's how we're going to end our service. We're going to end it with praying and repenting, and we're going to end it with giving you the opportunity to go and receive the Lord's table because he led with fellowship at his table before he ever began the process of change in your life. And so uh, as we observe the Lord's table, you come forward and pray. You come go to the back and receive communion. And then uh, as you take communion, you can head on into your week from there. We'll dismiss from the communion table. Tracking with me? Let's stand to our feet. You move as the Lord leads.